I recently saw that London has a higher murder rate than New York and that this is due primarily to knife stabbings. I increasingly avoid opinion-based news coverage because the talking heads have very little wisdom in addressing these problems, and by these problems I mean Western civilizations swirl down the drain. Though I understand policymakers make policy, and they aren't in the business of preaching the gospel and giving people new hearts, but they do act as if policies and legislation function in a salvific sense. This is both uh, happening on the left and the right. If we could just regulate guns enough or provide better mental health care or stop bullying, uh, these things would resolve themselves. But all of these uh, proposals miss the mark by a mile. We know that the real problem, the root of the problem, is sin. And that without the acknowledgement of sin, we don't need the acknowledgement uh, of a Savior. And so we think that we can get rid of God and that we can kill God as Nietzsche would have us do. God is dead and we have killed him. Who will wipe this blood from our hands? And this is what we uh, see on the news in our culture, a society filled with overeducated, arrogant adulterers and idolaters who think they can wash away the blood from their hands, that they can become gods worthy of the task of redemption, all the while the, uh, our Western civilization is burning it's going up in smoke like Sodom, like the antediluvian world. But God knows how to save the righteous. He provides a way of escape. This reminds us of our need to confess. After Adam's sin and excommunication from the garden, we see continued rebellion to our creator in his son Cain, and then in Cain's son Enoch, who then built, uh, built a city. The city of Enoch, the city of man, are the men who are of the seed of the serpent. They're violent men, disobedient men. And uh, it grows. The city grows. It continues in wickedness until it encompasses the entire earth. And then God decides to destroy the city, which encompassed the whole world and filled it with her wickedness. And God not only decided to destroy all the wicked men in the city, but all the animals that were under their dominion too. This is an example of the negative consequences of covenantal dominion and disobedience, that when men are given authority and dominion and then act wickedly, that their sin, their wickedness, adversely affects those whom they have authority over. Similarly, we see that Noah finds favor with the Lord, that God sees Noah as a perfect man, a just man, a righteous man, a man that is not like the men of the city of Enoch, not like the rest of the world, not like the men of uh, the city of man, uh, but he's a man who is of the city of God. And because of this, his whole family and a remnant of the animals under his dominion were saved. This is an example of the positive effects of covenantal dominion, that the righteousness of Noah... Uh, uh, positively affects those that were under his dominion, similarly to the righteousness of Abraham and those who were under his dominion, or Moses and uh, how he led the Israelites out of the Exodus. All of these are positive effects of being under the covenantal dominion of some covenantal head. And of course, Christ is the ultimate covenantal head, and uh, so we share the positive effects of being under his covenantal headship, the tutelage of Christ, um, positively affects those 
who are in it, uh, specifically those who are obedient, and then there are negative consequences for those who are disobedient. But in chapter 6, verse 9 uh, of our translation, says that Noah was a perfect man. Uh, other translations um, say blameless, and I think blameless is probably a better translation he, he uh, was blameless in the same way Paul was blameless before the law in Philippians 3.6. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He was blameless in the same way that John the Baptist's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were. Uh, as it says in Luke 1.6, that they walked blamelessly in all the commandments and decrees of the Lord. And... Uh, in Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 14, uh, I'll just, I'll read the whole thing. Uh, when, you, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those na- nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you will dispossess listened to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. So in Deuteronomy, you have the other nations and their wicked practices And they're contrasted with the people of God, with Israel. And God says, don't act like them. Do not engage in these practices. Do not engage in the wickedness of the people around you. But be blameless before the Lord. And this is how Noah was blameless before the Lord, by not engaging in the wickedness of the people around him. In the Septuagint, the Greek word uh, for blameless in Deuteronomy, uh, in the Deuteronomy passage that we just read, uh, is the same Greek word that's used for Noah in uh, um, Genesis 6-9. Um, and it's the same uh, Greek word used by Jesus when he says, be perfect, therefore, uh, as your heavenly Father is perfect, in Matthew five forty-eight. So all of these things are, uh, it's possible to be perfect, to be blameless. Be blameless as your heavenly Father is blameless. And I don't think that it means that Noah was sinless, as sinless perfection belongs solely to Christ, and it is only in Christ that we receive uh, the ultimate blessings of God, just as Jacob had to appear uh, to be his older brother Esau in order to receive the blessing from his father, so we too have to appear as our older brother Christ when we appear before our Heavenly Father in order to receive uh, the blessings, to receive our inheritance. But there's another sense in which we are to be perfect or blameless, which is by adhering to the laws of God, forsaking our sin, not practicing the ways of the world, uh, but practicing the ways of God, and confessing our sins when we fall short. Uh, The law of God knows that we are sinners, um, and we keep the law of God perfectly by acknowledging our sin and living by faith. So we are perfect by acknowledging our sin and confessing it, and forsaking it. God's law has a mechanism for dealing with sin, which all points to Christ and his ultimate sacrifice uh, for us. And that 
uh, even though our ultimate justification and right standing for God uh, and perfection before God does come uh, through Christ's righteousness, there is another sense in which uh, God does reward and punish our own uh, righteousness and disobedience inside of the covenant. So I say all of this to show that it is, uh, when it says that he was a perfect man or that he was blameless, that this is possible. When Jesus says to be perfect, it is possible to be perfect. It is possible to be blameless. Um, and uh, it says that here about Noah. So God says he's going to establish his covenant with Noah. And I, I believe in chapter 6, I believe that this is the first time that the word covenant comes up. And how does this look like? Well, uh, he warns him of the coming judgment and he instructs him to build a different city. A different city, uh, a, uh, a kind of city which could withstand the judgments of God. A peculiar city, an ark. Um, and Noah is... Uh, uh, he obeys, and he's instrumental in um, his own salvation, which I only say that just to be provocative. He, he works in such a way which uh, contributes to his own salvation. Um, his salvation didn't come easily. He had to work for it. He had to build it. Uh, chapter 6, verse 18, he says, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And so God establishes his covenant with Noah by promising salvation to Noah, um, but not only to Noah, but also to his wife, and to his sons, and to his sons' wives, and then to all the animals under his dominion. Again, this covenantal, uh, this kind of, the covenantal blessings of Noah's faithfulness trickling down to those that are under him. And then we read in our passage today about the final arrival of doomsday. That doomsday comes, and it comes in the form of water. It comes in the form of a flood, a deluge. And the last thing that Noah hears from God are instructions to build the ark because there was some kind of judgment coming, that death was on its way. But God didn't specify how it was coming. He didn't tell Noah what exactly it would look like. He didn't say it was going to be a flood, or at least we're not told that. He simply told him to build, and he did. He believed that he believed what God was saying was true, even though he, he didn't have all of the details worked out. Um, in Hebrews eleven seven, by faith Noah, being warned of God, of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark. We aren't told exactly how long it took for Noah to build the ark, but it was probably around 55 to 75 years, and you can calculate that by looking at the ages of his son, uh, the ages of his sons and in, in preceding and um, uh, succeeding chapters. So after a substantial amount of time passes, God, God speaks again. He calls Noah into the ark. You and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me. And the you here is sing singular. He's saying you, Noah. You and all your household come in because I've seen that you, Noah, are righteous. 
Again, the righteousness of Noah and his obedience to God brings salvation to him and his household. And we see this happen later on with Abraham and his righteousness. Abraham's righteousness is then symbolized by everyone, transferred to everyone in his household through circumcision, which Paul talks about in Romans, that it's a sign of faith, and it's a sign of Abraham's faith, but then it gets, uh, it's get, uh, that sign is placed on everyone. And Paul in Colossians uh, compares circumcision to baptism. And we see this later with Moses and his righteousness and bringing all of Israel through the Red Sea, which we are told by Paul is a type of baptism. And similarly here, uh, we are told by Peter that the flood is a type of baptism. And so taking all of these things and, and many, many more things into consideration from Scripture, uh, we form the basis of our understanding of covenantal baptism, which happens to include infants. So it's not that we believe in infant baptism, it's that we believe in covenantal baptism, where entire households are baptized by virtue of the faith of at least one uh, uh, believer of the covenantal head. Peter tells us uh, in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, uh, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water, there is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards, toward God, 1 Peter 3, 20-21. So Peter tells us that the flood is a type of baptism which foreshadowed the antitype or the fulfillment which is baptism in the New Covenant, and that even water baptism in the New Covenant um, symbolizes uh, the answer of a good conscience to God. It isn't simply the, the, the um, ritual of the baptism itself, but it's what that symbolizes. It's what it symbolizes spiritually, the answer of a good conscience toward God, like Noah. But it wasn't just Noah who was baptized. It was his entire household. And we see this in the New Testament when people are baptized, that it's them and their entire family uh, which is baptized. And if we consider what the baptism of the flood looked like for Noah and his family, they weren't immersed in the waters of judgment. Um, they were... Uh, sprinkled or poured on. They, they weren't fully immersed. Uh, the imagery of the floodwaters coming up from the deep and coming down from heaven uh, factor into, into why I, I believe all modes, immersion, pouring, sprinkling, I believe they're all valid, but I prefer the mode of pouring um, because in Genesis 1, 6 through 8, we're told that God uh, separated the waters from the waters um, that the water, he separates waters that are under heaven into waters that are above heaven. Um, in Genesis it says, Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God, God called the firmament heaven. And in our passage, in verse 11, we are told that the fountains of the great deep were opened up, and the windows of heaven were opened up. 
In other words, the waters which were separated at creation came together in judgment on the sin of all flesh. And this is why I like the mode of pouring, because uh, when a child is in a, a baptistry or, or an adult convert standing in a shallow river, like Jesus stood in the Jordan, uh, we, can, we can take water from below, like God does at creation, and we can separate the water from the water, and we can bring it above the head of the one being baptized, like the water uh, bringing brought above the heavens, and then in the water above the firmament, and then it is poured out like water pouring out of the windows of heaven on the head of the one being baptized as a symbol of the judgment of God who cleanses you of your sinful flesh through Christ, just as he cleansed the world of all sinful flesh in the flood. So I, I like that because it goes all the way back to creation and, the, and really the first, uh, and, and the first explicit reference to a baptism um, is by Peter and it, it goes to the flood. So I think that that's really powerful imagery. There's other reasons too that I prefer pouring because there's it, it a strong association with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit pouring out. Um, but those are the main reasons. So God tells Noah to, to take seven each of every clean animal in verse 2. And it's not totally clear what's, what's going on here. Um, but it seems the best expl explanation is that this somehow uh, anticipated the sacrifices Noah was to make afterward. Because in the next chapter, Noah sacrifices clean animals to the Lord. Uh, the early church father Jerome believed that the numbering of animals also anticipates sacrifice and that it also, um, that not only the, anticipates the sacrifices afterwards, but that it also has something to say about uh, sexual ethics, which it may or may not, but I still think it's interesting. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote uh, what he wrote in, in a letter. He says, Noah brings in for his three sons, uh, one wife apiece and not two. <laughs> Likewise, of the unclean animals, pairs only are taken, male and female, to show that digamy, or having two wives, polygamy, uh, has no place even among brutes, creeping things, crocodiles, and lizards. And if of the clean animals there are seven taken of each kind, that is, an uneven number, this points to the palm which awaits virginal chastity. I don't know what he means by saying points to the palm, but he's talking about um, he's talking about the uneven number being there's there are uh, basically three pairs of clean animals, and then there's just one animal on its own, and that one animal on its own, which is going to be sacrificed, represents virginal chastity. <laughs> For on leaving the ark, Noah sacrificed victims to God, not of course of the animals taken by twos, for those were kept to multiply their species, but of those taken by seven, some of which had been set apart for sacrifice. So that's something to consider. And it's also another interesting consideration that there's a distinction between clean and unclean animals, which predates the Mosaic Covenant. Um, I, I don't really have much more to say on that, but that, that is something to consider. <clears throat> so unclean animals, he takes two. Clean animals, he takes seven. And uh, there's a lot of animals in the world. So how is it possible for Noah to fit 
uh, these this many animals into the ark? Uh, well, I'll tell you. Um, if you look at verse 14 in our passage, it talks about the animals entering after its kind. Every beast after its kind, cattle after its kind, creeping things after its kind, uh, birds after its kind. And this same language is used in Genesis 1. God creates the different uh, worlds. He creates the heaven and the earth on the first day, the seas on the second day, the land on the third. And then with the corresponding fourth, fifth, and sixth days, he fills those things. He fills the heavens with stars and celestial bodies on the fourth day, which corresponds to the first. He fills the sea with fish, which corresponds to the second. And, and also on that day, he fills the sky with birds. Um, so that's on the fifth day, which corresponds to the second and then he fills the dry land with beasts, land creatures, and humans on the sixth, which corresponds to the third day. And then he rests on the seventh, of course. Uh, but these animals that are created, they're created according to their kind. We're constantly told that. And, and, and we're told that they are taken into the ark according to their kind. Um, and the, the, the English word for baraman... Uh, comes from a combination of two Hebrew words, uh, bara meaning created and min meaning kind. So a baraman just means a created kind. And there are, there are baramanologists out there who specialize in this. They do the work of trying to figure out what a created kind is, and they, they haven't. Um, <laughs> there's still debate on what it actually is. Um, and as young earth creationists, we... Uh, we believe that, um, well, let me, I'll just say quickly, a created kind is basically that all, all species of dogs that we have all come from one bearman. And that is, and that is the archetype of all dogs that we have. Same thing with cats or camels. Uh, there's tons of varieties of these things, but they all, descend in a microevolutionary sense from the Behrman. And as young earth creationists, we believe, uh, we, we, we don't dismiss evolution, we just believe that evolution only occurs within these Behrmans, and that, uh, that microevolutionary processes take place, um, which allow animals to adapt to their environments, um, uh, but that they are not able to um, evolve from one Behrman to another which is the difference between us and Darwinian evolutionists, or even create, uh, Christian evolutionists, who believe that we all come from a common ancestor, just one ancestor, meaning that all living organisms descended from one common ancestor, that both squids and humans have a common ancestor, that bananas and centipedes have a common ancestor. If we go, enough, uh, if we go far enough back, we all... Uh, come from some miraculous protein which developed from uh, this primordial slime that was somehow manipulated by heat and electricity and secret stardust from aliens. And then the simple protein developed into more complex cellular life. And now we have David Hogg telling us what to do on CNN. But young earth creationists don't believe that. We just believe that all of life was created diverse, and this diversity uh, began with different uh, bearmans. Okay. So, um, 
I guess a, a few more things. Bear, a bear man is not the same thing as a species, but they are probably roughly equivalent to uh, what families or genus um, categorizations are on the, the, the taxonomic ranking system. So with this in mind, we can do a little bit of calculation to see how Noah fit all these animals on the ark. And it should already become apparent that Noah is not, de he's dealing with less animals than we see in the world today. <clears throat> so here it is. If we consider the ark's dimension, which are given in the preceding chapter, we can say that the ark could fit about 270 modern freight cars in it from uh, uh, American railroad uh, systems, trains. And the average size of a land animal uh, is uh, about the size of a sheep. So this means that one railroad can fit 240 individual land animals. Now, if we assume that a bearman is the family rank, there would be about 2,000 animals on the ark, and that would fill up about 8.3 freight cars out of 270. If we assume that a bearman is the genus rank, and we include even extinct genera in there, uh, there would be about 16,000 animals on the ark, which would still only fill 67 freight cars. That's only 25% of the deck space on the ark, which leaves plenty of room for food storage, stretching your legs, and shuffleboard. So there's a brief apologetic argument from a, a practical standpoint uh, for understanding how this was, uh, from a pragmatic perspective, even possible. Uh, I mean, God can make all of this possible. You know, he, he, he can feed thousands of people with, you know, limited food and <laughs> come back from the dead, create things out of nothing. But there's, these are, uh, this, that's just a, a pragmatic explanation of how this, how this actually went down. All right, so Noah is then told by God that uh, he's going to cause it to rain in seven days. And this means either that it took Noah seven days to load the ark, uh, or that they entered the ark and then seven days later it began to rain in verse 10. And if it's the latter, if it's Noah waiting in the ark for seven days before it started raining, I think it's really worth reflecting on the nature of Noah's patience and faith here. It's worth noting either way, actually, but... Uh, for him to be uh, sitting there for seven days and God shuts up the ark and he's waiting for something to happen that he's, he, he's never seen before, um, I think is significant to, to consider. Especially because we're told by Second Peter, or we're told by Peter in Second Peter 2.5 that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And we know... Uh, we know that he was 600 years old when the flood came, and we can roughly estimate the time it took, we already talked about that, 50, 55 to 75 years to build the ark. So Noah would have literally been preaching righteousness for hundreds of years. Um, I think that's safe to assume. And he only won over his family. He was, he was most likely mocked and ridiculed as he built this monumental yet seemingly ridiculous giant box. Uh, and then he gets inside this big ridiculous box and he waits for the end of the world like an ultimate doomsday prepper, sitting there in this hot, 
smelly zoo just waiting. Living the last week of the old world with your family in this giant zoo boat. Seven days to create the world, seven days to end it. Noah sitting there uh, in the patience that had been cultivated over hundreds of years of being mocked and scorned and ignored and living in obscurity and doing things that uh, didn't make sense until the day came, until the day of judgment came, that his obedience paid off. Jesus tells us that the world Noah lived in was a world of people eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage, that they were, they were having a good time. They were living it up. And anyone who has spent time preaching righteousness in a public space knows the kind of ridicule and the mocking that is garnered from that. Paul says, for we are God, the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life, 2 Corinthians 2.15. And when you preach righteousness to those who are perishing, it's the smell of death. They hate it. They can't stand it. And in a sense, one who preaches they, they set themselves on fire so that his self-sacrifice will be pleasing to those uh, being saved, be pleasing to the Lord, but it's also an aroma that's uh, pleasing to those being saved, and it's repulsive to those who are perishing. And this is what Noah was doing. This is what we are doing, especially those who have preached the righteousness of marriage as an indissoluble covenant. We are a minority. We are small, like Noah and his family. We are mocked, not only by the world, but also by most of God's people. We're viewed as cultish, like Noah and his family probably were. Ignored for hundreds of years, building a weird boat for decades. Engaged in just baffling activity to the unbelieving world. But judgment came, and judgment will come for us too. And that judgment will vindicate us. Hebrews 11.7 says that by faith Noah condemned the world. And so we stand with righteous Noah and we condemn the world with our faith too. We say that there is no salvation outside of the ark. There is no salvation outside of the church, outside of Christ. Now you may go to a building every Sunday and you may be on a membership role. And you may even partake of the sacraments. But you are outside of the church if you are not in Christ. Meaning not abiding in him and keeping his law. You are only eating and drinking judgment on yourself the longer you refuse to repent of your adulterous marriage and your communion with those who engage in adulterous marriages. A flood of judgment will come for you and there will be no escaping it. And you may even grasp onto the outside of the ark and pound on the hull, but God will have already sealed the door shut and you will drown in the outer darkness. You will be surrounded with weeping and gnashing of teeth and piles of human and animal parts and entrails and blood, and you will die. Dying, you will surely die. But my Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles? Did we not start many classical Christian schools? Did we not write many insightful blogs on the Gospel Coalition and preach many stirring sermons? Did we not build many successful ministries? Did we not raise a stable family and live a successful middle-class life? Did we not? Did we not? Did we not? And I will say to you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 
I never knew you. To know Christ, you have to die like Christ. You have to pick up your cross. You have to close yourself up into the coffin that God gives you. Noah built for himself a coffin, and it was his salvation. Just like the cross is our coffin, our death, but it is also our life. Noah entered the coffin, and God closed him up in it, and he passes through the 40-day period of being locked up in a smelly, seasick zoo. And this after hundreds of years of no conversions, but his own family. And so we see Noah's faith as a patient faith. It's a faith that doesn't despair either. A faith which goes against the world, an Athanasian contramundum faith. A faith that God was pleased to cultivate in Noah, just as he is pleased to cultivate it in you, in us. That God's timeline looks nothing like our timeline That God raises up men as exemplars of faith. And sometimes those exemplars are us. And sometimes it isn't. And if so, the patience of Noah ought to put our impatience to shame. Noah endured patiently and he was made holy through it. Why? Why was he made holy through it? Because he was made like God. Because God is patient and God wants us to reflect his image that is what we were made as. That is what we were made for. That, it, that is what it is to be complete, to be blameless, to be perfect, is to reflect the image of God, our patient God. And looking back, we can see that God was patient. He was, he was patient with all of mankind. He gave them over a hundred years to repent. He's not only patient, but he's gracious beyond understanding because even in the judgment of sin through the flood he gave riches to the world riches that we are still enjoying to this day what do i mean i mean that most of the energy that we get today comes from plants and animals which were buried in some kind of uh, catastrophic and rapid flood waters most likely from the global flood of noah's day Fossil fuels, coal beds, these are found in large deposits, which uh, they're large deposits in the earth, and which are the remains of dead plants and animals that died quickly and in some catastrophic event, which is most likely the flood. We don't have fossil fuels being formed today, and when we do, it's from rapid catastrophic flooding. You, the way that a fossil, the way that fossil fuels our fossil fuels come from fossils, and fossils only occur when, when uh, an organism dies quickly and it is buried in, uh, in rapid catastrophic flooding. And so, uh, basically, our fossil fuels come from giant graveyards in the earth. And that these giant graveyards, the simplest explanation from where they come from is from the flood. Similarly, our diamonds most likely come from the flood as well because diamonds require extraordinary pressure to form, usually deep under the earth, hundreds of miles under the earth, and they're transported up to the earth's surface somehow through the shifting of tectonic plates and the opening of the waters of the deep. I'm not a, I'm not a geologist and there's, there's many theories of how these were formed 
but it's a similar concept to the fossil fuel, fuels. Diamonds are rare and expensive and beautiful, and they were given to us during a time of judgment and colossal death, the death of the whole world. And through this death, we have fossil fuels and diamonds. We have diamonds which, ad which adorn women. We have fossil fuels which allow us to control the weather in our homes, uh, drive anywhere we want on land or sea, fly anywhere in the world, and even in the space. Fossil fuels give us oil, which give us energy, which we have converted into the riches the world has never seen before. In like manner, the death of Christ has been life for the world. Judgment of sin was riches for the world in Christ. The judgment Jesus received on our behalf has given eternal life to the world. Because he came into the world so that we might have life. That the world might be saved through him. Through receiving the punishment of sin due the world. The wrath of God. The judgment of God poured out like the waters of judgment in the great flood unto Christ. While he hung nailed to a cross. And insofar as we reject Christ, it's like remaining outside the ark. And waiting to be swept away in judgment. And insofar as we accept Christ, it is like entering into the ark. The ark of salvation and passing through the flood waters of baptism, and entering into a new life in a new world, a rich new world. Let's pray. One of the things you may have noticed in our passage is uh, a lot of repetition. The general story of Noah entering the ark and the flood coming is repeated about three times in the passage. And um, there's even certain phrases which are repeated several times. The waters increased, the waters prevailed, the waters greatly increased, the waters prevailed exceedingly, the waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, or all flesh died, all that was on dry land died. He destroyed all living things, they were destroyed. These repetitions are uh, placed for emphasis, that's, that's really it, to drive home a point, to highlight the event, to put an exclamation point behind it. Um, and we see this everywhere in Scripture, really. When Jesus teaches, he often precedes what he's about to say with truly, truly. Uh, the seraphim around the throne of God repetitively declare the holiness of God. And how do they do this? Uh, uh, it's what we sing during the Sanctus. Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. I could go on, but you get the point. It's, and it's not a profound point, but it's one which manifests itself in all of life and specifically our worship on Sunday that when we come together, we repeat this meal. And Jesus told us to. He told us to emphasize it. Uh, he, he told us, uh, he instituted this meal to drive home the point, to highlight the event, the event of his perfect sacrifice. The breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. So every Sunday we repeat, this is my body, this is my body, this is my body. Do this, do this, do this. And we do. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this. Be patient. Be patient like Noah was patient. Be faithful. Be faithful like Noah was faithful. Be moved with godly fear. Build the coffin that God tells you to build and joyfully get inside. Patiently endure the cross of your affliction because God offers joy through it. He offers salvation through it. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of of the everlasting covenant make you complete in every good work to do his will, 
working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.